Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 217 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that Lloyds of London was forced to reset its IT systems this week after a cyber attack. We then have a warning from Meta, the owner of Facebook, which says that the use of some third-party app may have inadvertently allowed their user credentials to be exposed to the app developer. We then travel to Russia with news that cyber attackers are turning their aim on the Kremlin. And we then return to the UK, where the ICO has announced that it could impose a multi-million pound penalty on TikTok for breaches of GDPR and breaches of the Children's Code. We have news that the ICO has issued a formal reprimand to the UK Home Office. And remaining with the ICO, they fined Easy Life £14.8 million for breaking data protection rules and also electronic communication rules. Remaining with the ICO, the ICO has issued details of Virgin Media's failure to action data subject access requests within the required time frame and what actions they require Virgin Media to take. And when we have a potentially very important ruling from the EU Attorney General. The Attorney General was asked to consider whether damages should be payable in the case of a data breach where there is no proof of any material harm to the claimant. And their ruling has been that no, there shouldn't be. Now, this could have a major effect on no-win, no-fee data claim solicitors as to whether they actually think it's worth taking action after a data breach or whether you know what. Actually, if there's no material damages, it's better just to let sleeping dogs lie. So have a listen to that part of this week's episode because I think you'll find it really interesting. We then have news that the UK Department of Culture, Media and Sport has put its data reform bill, which we've spoken about a couple of times recently here on the GDPR Weekly Show, they've put the reform bill on hold for an unknown period of time, whilst they carry out more industry consultation. So we will, of course, keep a watching brief across that consultation and bring any news on that to you here on the GDPR Show. We then travel to Cincinnati in the USA, where Talbot House has had a data breach, and then to Michigan, and particularly with Detroit. And the city of Detroit has terminated its election software company contract after a data breach investigation. Remaining in the US, we travel to Connecticut, where a gun retailer, Ruger, is facing legal action after a data breach that went on for two years. We'll have a very brief news from Toyota that they've had a data breach, and we hope to get more detail from them before next week's episode of GDPR Weekly Show. We then travel to San Francisco, where the former Uber security chief has been found guilty of concealing a data breach. We then have some new draft guidance from the ICO, on the use of PETS. And if you don't know what PETS is, then have a listen to that article in this week's episode. And then we talk to Ireland, where the RSA, the Road Safety Agency, says that GDPR has limited its ability to publish road accident data. And then finally this week, we have news that long-time campaigner Johnny Ryan has raised a new complaint regarding the activities of the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, and he's raised those complaints with the European Commission. We hope you find the information in this week's articles useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdpowerweeklyshow.com. We do really value your feedback. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. 
GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. Lloyds of London was forced to reset all of its IT systems on Friday this week and it's probing a possible cyber attack against it after detecting worrying network behaviour. Lloyds has detected unusual activity on its network and we're investigating the issue, a spokesperson said. As a precautionary measure, we are resetting the Lloyds network and systems. All external connectivity has been turned off, including Lloyds' delegated authority platforms. Lloyds of London is the UK-based insurance marketplace made up of about 80 insurance syndicates that underwrite risk. The spokesperson added, We have informed market participants and relevant parties, and we will provide more information once our investigations have concluded. The Lloyds spokesperson wouldn't be drawn on further immediate details regarding the security attack, including whether any data had been stolen, if it was a ransomware attack, or who it thought might be behind the intrusion. The insurance market has supported sanctions against Russia that aim to punish President Vladimir Putin for invading neighbouring Ukraine. These include the UK and European Union ban on insuring ships carrying Russian oil. Additionally, word of the weird Lloyds network activity comes shortly after a warning from Kiev that Russian plans to conduct massive cyber attacks on Ukraine and its allies' critical infrastructure and power grids. The unusual network activity at Lloyd's follows several high-profile cyber attacks over the past couple of months that hit major US healthcare networks, the Los Angeles Unified School District, Uber and Rockstar Games. Earlier this year, Lloyd's of London issued advice to its syndicates, in which underwriting director Tony Chowdhury said, Lloyd's remains strongly supportive of cyber attack coverage. However, as these threats continue to grow, they may expose the market to systemic risks that syndicates could struggle to manage. If we get any further update on this attack from Lloyds of London, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener of the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've often mentioned Facebook or Meta or other members of the Meta family. Well, this week, the social media platform announced that it has identified more than 400 malicious Android and iOS apps which target internet users in order to steal their Facebook login credentials. Meta platforms revealed that it would notify 1 million Facebook users that their account credentials may have been compromised due to security issues with apps downloaded from Alphabet Inc., i.e. the Google Play Store, and Apple's software stores. Meta has informed both Apple and Google about the issue in order to prevent users' data from further being compromised. These harmful apps work by disguising themselves as photo editors, mobile games, or health trackers, Facebook stated. According to Apple, 45 of the 400 apps were on its app store and they've now been removed. Google removed all the malicious apps in question following the report from Meta. Meta recommends that you reset and create new strong passwords on your account. Never reuse your passwords across multiple websites. Enable two-factor authentication, preferably use an authentication app to add an extra security layer to your account. They also suggest that you turn on login alerts that you'll be notified if someone's trying to access your account. Be sure to review your previous sessions to ensure you recognise which devices have access to your account. It's also encouraged that you report malicious applications that compromise Meta accounts to Meta through their data abuse bounty programme. To Moscow now, and a group of civilian Russians who formed the National Republican Army, the NRA, have launched a huge cyber attack against the Kremlin to try and overthrow Vladimir Putin. NRA hackers have started coordinated attacks on the Kremlin and executed an advanced ransomware attack on the network of Uni Software. Uni Software is a Russian development company who developed API solutions and desktop systems. 
An NRA member told the Kiev Post, Putin needlessly sending our young men to die in an unjust war waged against Ukraine that resulted in the slaughter of innocent civilians, including women and children. The hatchers said they've stolen copies of all Unisoftware's data, which includes, but not limited to, credentials for bank accounts and personal accounts, sensitive employee information, phone numbers, addresses, contracts and proprietary code for Unisoftware's clients and software. The NRA have said they will release all the data and information if not paid promptly by Unisoftware. Since the war started, the Kremlin and other government departments across Russia have been hit with various cyber attacks, mainly from a collective group Anonymous. In September, Moscow was brought to a standstill. In September, Moscow was brought to a standstill, lasting three hours after Anonymous hacked Yandex Taxi, which is the city's largest cab company. The cyber guerrillas hacked Yandex systems, successfully sending every single cab to the same address in Moscow, which resulted in a three-hour traffic jam in the western part of the city. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. TikTok could face a £27 million fine after an ICO investigation found that the company may have breached GDPR and the UK Data Protection Act for failing to protect children's privacy when using the TikTok platform. The ICO is issued TikTok Incorporated and TikTok Information Technologies UK Limited with a Notice of Intent, a legal document that precedes a potential fine. The notice sets out the ICO's provisional view that TikTok breached UK data protection laws between May 2018 and July 2020. The ICO investigation found that the company may have processed the data of children under the age of 13 without appropriate parental consent, failed to provide proper information to its users in a concise, transparent and easily understood way, and processed special category data without the legal grounds to do so. The Commissioner's findings in the Notice of Provisional, no conclusion should be drawn at this stage that there has in fact been any breach of data protection law or that a financial penalty will ultimately be imposed. The ICO say they would carefully consider any representations from TikTok before making a final decision. Information Commissioner John Edwards said, We all want children to be able to learn and experience the digital world, but with proper data privacy protection. Companies providing digital services have a legal duty to put those protections in place, but our provisional view is that TikTok fell short of meeting that requirement. I've been clear that our work to better protect children online involves working with organisations, but we'll also involve enforcement action where necessary. In addition to this, we're currently looking into how over 50 different online services are conforming with the children's code and have since ongoing investigations looking into companies providing digital services who haven't. In our initial view, taking their responsibilities around child safety seriously enough. Now, of course, the Children's Code came into force on the 2nd of September 2021. So, if you are an organisation who will be affected by the Children's Code and you've not yet taken any steps to address it, then now is the time to do so. And, of course, we would be more than happy to help you do that here at the GDPR Weekly Show. So, please do just stay in contact with us by emailing feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our team will get back to you. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. The ICO has issued a formal reprimand to the UK Home Office after sensitive documents were found at a public London venue. The documents, which were handed by venue staff to police in September 2021, included two extremism analysis unit Home Office reports and a counter-terrorism policing report. The reports contain personal data, including that of Metropolitan Police staff. A government investigation concluded that the Home Office was the most likely source of the documents. The reprimand has been issued to the Secretary of State for the Home Department, the Home Secretary, as the data controller for the Home Office. 
The ISO found that the Home Office had failed to ensure an appropriate level of security of personal data, including where documents were classified as official sensitive. The investigation also found that the Home Office did not have a specific sign-out process to remove the documents from the premises, and the incident had not been reported to the ICO within the required 72-hour time limit. ICO Commissioner John Edwards said, Government officials are expected to work with sensitive documents in order to run the country. There's an expectation, both in law and from the people the government serves, that this information will be treated respectfully and securely. In this instance, that did not happen, and I expect the Department to take steps to avoid similar mistakes in the future. A spokesperson for the Home Office said they'd since taken steps to avoid similar breaches occurring in the future. The reprimand sets out further actions needed, including review of the handling instructions around official sensitive information, consideration of a sign-out process when documents leave the office, and a review of training provided to staff around the handling of records containing personal data. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has fined EasyLife Limited £1,350,000 for using personal information of 145,400 customers to predict their medical condition and target them with health-related products without their consent. The company was also fined £130,000 for making 1,345,732 predatory direct marketing calls. Easy Life is a catalogue retailer that sells household items as well as services and products under their health, motor, supercard and gardening clubs. The ICO investigation found that when a customer purchased a product from Easy Life's health sub-catalogue, the company would make assumptions about their medical condition and then market health-related products to them without their consent. For example, if a person bought a jar opener or a dinner tray, Easy Life would use that purchase data to assume that the person had arthritis and then told the individual to market glucosamine joint patches. Out of 122 products in Easy Life's house sub catalogue, 80 items were considered to be trigger products. Once these products were purchased, Easy Life would profile the customer to target them with a house related item. The ICO found that significant profiling of customers and invisible processing of health data was taking place. It's invisible because people are unaware the company was collecting and using their personal data for that purpose. This in itself is against data protection law. In a separate investigation, the ICO found that between the 1st of August 2019 and 19th of August 2020, Easy Life made 1,345,732 unwanted marketing calls to people registered with the Telephone Preference Service, the TPS. Under the Privacy and Communications Regulations, PECA, live marketing tool, bah. Under the Privacy and Communications Regulations, PECA, live marketing tool, John, what's wrong with me today? Try it again. Under the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, PECA, live marketing calls should not be made to anyone who has registered with the TPS unless they've told the caller that they wish to receive calls from them. The ICO received 25 complaints about Easy Life with people saying that they felt angry, anxious, threatened and distressed in response to the calls. One of the complainants was an elderly, hearing-impaired person registered with TPS who'd been unable to hear most of the call, while another individual was missold two subscriptions and required a family member's help to arrange a refund. John Edwards, the UK Information Commissioner, said... Easy Life is making assumptions about people's medical conditions based on their purchase history without their knowledge and then peddled them a health product that's not allowed. The invisible use of yeah, the invisible use of people's data meant that people could not understand how their data was being used and ultimately were not able to exercise their privacy and data protection rights. 
the lack of transparency combined with the intrusive nature of the profiling has resulted in a serious breach of people's information rights. Easy Life was not only found guilty of breaching data protection law, but our investigation also discovered they'd made thousands of predatory marketing calls to people who clearly did not want to receive them. It is clear from the complaints we received that people felt threatened and distressed by the company's aggressive tactics. This is unacceptable. Companies making similar nuisance tools and causing harm to people didn't expect a strong response from my office, he said. Members of the public who believe their personal data has been misused or they've been victim of nuisance texts, calls or emails should report them to the ICO, where you can get in touch either a live chat on their website at ico.org.uk or you can call the ICO helpline on 0303 123 1113. Last week here on the Digital Weekly Show, we brought news that the ICO had served Virgin Media with a notice about its compliance with GDPR, particularly in regard to data subject access requests. Now this week, the ICO has released like, a bit more information on exactly what the issues are with what Virgin have been doing. They say that they investigated whether Virgin Media has complied with the requirements of data protection legislation. As part of that process, the ICO sought numerous pieces of information from Virgin Media to assess the extent to which it has complied with the requirements of Article 15, Right of Access, and Article 12.3, Rights of Data Subjects, of the UK GDPR for the period 1st of July 2021 to 28th of April 2022, including the extent to which responses have been issued to requesters, the timeliness of those responses, the number of complaints received regarding subject access requests, the policies and procedures in place to process subject access requests, and the resource and staff training dedicated to the handling of subject access requests. The ICO has pointed out that organisations must comply with a subject access request without undue delay, and that the latest in 30 days to receive the request, or within 30 days of any information requested to confirm the requested identity, or a fee, if a fee is payable, and of course, you know, hopefully you all know that a fee is only payable quite rarely now under GDPR for the provisional information. The ICO then says, after careful consideration and based on the information provided, we have decided to issue Virgin Media with a reprimand in accordance with Article 58 of GDPR. This is because we are not satisfied that Virgin Media has processed requests across the period 1st of July 2021 to 28th of April 2022 in such a way as to avoid undue delay or in any event to deal with requests within one month of receipt. They say that Virgin Media is in breach of Article 12, Paragraph 3 and Article 15, Paragraph 1 and Article 15, Paragraph 3 of GDPR. They say that based on the findings of their investigation, Virgin Media did not respond to 14%, that's 1,316, of the subject access requests it received during the period of 1st July 2021 to 31st December 2021 within the statutory time frame of 30 calendar days. A large number of complaints, 493, had been received by Virgin Media concerning its subject access request compliance for the period 1st of July 2021 to 31st of December 2021, with 95% of these complaints relating to delays in responding to subject access requests. For the period of 1st of January 2021 to 31st of December 2021, the ICO received 125 complaints concerning Virgin Media's subject access request compliance, which equates to 51% of all the complaints the ICO received about Virgin Media for the year 2021. As a result of this, the Commissioner has recommended that Virgin Media could take certain steps to improve its compliance with UK GDPR. In particular, the Virgin Media should take further steps to ensure that subject access requests are responded to within the deadlines in line with Articles 12, Paragraph 3, 15, Paragraph 1 and 15, Paragraph 3 of UK GDPR 
and also Virgin Media should ensure that it has adequate staff resources in place to process and respond to subject answers requests. They've said that Virgin Media should provide the ICO with an update on its subject access request compliance and the progress results of its subject access request improvement plan after three months from the date of the letter, which is the 20th of December 2022. A further update should also be provided to the ICO after six months from the date of this letter, which is 20th of March 2023. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. A thorny question around GDPR has always been, is compensation payable for the mere infringement of an individual's data protection rights, even where there have been no material damages? This crucial question has just been considered by the Advocate General in a leading test case making its way through the Court of Justice of the European Union, the CJEU, the senior civil court in the EU. The Advocate General ruling is that the answer is a resounding no. If the Attorney-General's opinion is followed by the CJEU, it's a further nail in the coffin of speculative data protection breach claims reflecting the trend that's also developed in the UK courts. This particular case emanates from Austria. It involves the Austrian Post Office, which gathers information on individuals and processes it via an algorithm in order to work out the individual's likely political affiliations. The claimant complained about this and claimed damages of €1,000 for the upset, anger and offence that it caused him. The Austrian Supreme Court referred the questions to the CJEU about whether Article 82 of GDPR allowed an individual to claim damages on this basis. Does a mere infringement of data protection rights entitle an individual to compensation, even if there's no actual material loss, and is merely being upset, angry and offended be enough to attract some sort of compensation? Attorney General Campos Sanchez Bordona issued an opinion to the CJEU on these questions on the 6th of October 2022. Attorney General opinions are not binding on the CJEU, but they are usually followed. In his opinion, the Attorney General said the mere infringement of data protection rights or loss of control over one's data does not entitle an individual to compensation. The individual must have suffered some damage as a result of the infringement. The Attorney General pointed out that Article 82 is compensatory in nature. It's not intended to punish those who infringe data protection rights. In the context of GDPR as a whole, this pin development is to be found in other provisions which allow individuals to complain to regulators and can themselves fine infringers or issue other sanctions against them. The Attorney General went further than this and said that control over one stage was not something that necessarily underpins GDPR in any event. He said that the basis to process data is sometimes based on the consent of the individual, but often on other grounds which don't involve consent, e.g. legitimate interest of the data controller or vital interest. The notion of loss of control is therefore not easy to justify as a basis of compensation. This does not seem to be a view which it is necessary for the CJEU to follow in order to reach the same outcome as the Attorney General. However, if it is followed by the CJEU, it opens up wider arguments about GDPR being more balanced in its treatment of competing rights to process personal data than perhaps we've all previously thought. In terms of whether merely being upset is enough to establish damage, the Attorney General said no. He said it could be left to national courts to determine whether non-material damage is sufficiently serious to attract compensation. Now, of course, here in the UK, the most relevant case which most of us referred to when we're looking at non-material damage and compensation was the ruling in the Supreme Court in 2021 on the case of Lloyd versus Google. In particular, the UK Supreme Court said mere loss of control over one's data is not enough to attract compensation. However, this decision was arrived at by reference to the former data protection regime, the 1998 UK Data Protection Act, as the alleged infringements took place before GDPR came into effect. The UK Supreme Court declined to say whether it would have reached the same conclusion under GDPR. 
Subsequently, in 2022, the English court permitted this question on the recovery of losses and control damages under GDPR to go to a full argument in a case involving TikTok. However, that case was substantially withdrawn by the claimant, so the point was not fully tested. Now, of course, the CJEU doesn't directly now have any ruling on UK torts or influence over UK torts because of Brexit. However, in our opinion, it seems unlikely that UK tort would strike out on their own and adopt a different approach to that adopted within the EU. But of course, also on top of that, we have, of course, the actions that are taking place within government at the moment here in the UK with, through the Data Reform Bill, which could make its own changes into UK GDPR, which might affect this whole damages thing even more. So we will follow this case with interest to see what the CJEU actually implement. And as soon as we know that, we will, of course, bring it to you right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. The government has announced that it's delaying the next stage of the Data Reform Bill, or as it will now be called, the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill, because they want to carry out further consultation. In an announcement to the Conservative Party Conference on Monday this week, Culture Secretary Michelle Donnellan said that the UK will have its own version of GDPR to replace the EU system. She said that the government bill will be put on hold and reconsidered. In her announcement, Donnellan didn't list many concrete details about what the new legislation would entail, but she said, I can promise that it will be simpler and clearer for businesses to navigate. She added it will be built on common sense, helping to prevent losses from cyber attacks and data breaches while protecting data privacy. Now, we have, of course, here on the GDPR Weekly Show mentioned before that these changes potentially are worrying, not just for what the effect they might have on UK business, but that they might then lead the EU to declare that UK GDPR is no longer adequate. And, of course, if the EU were to do that, that would impose all sorts of extra work on any organisation who wanted to transfer data to or from the EU. Currently, if no changes are made to UK GDPR, then the next review for data adequacy will not be made by the EU until sometime in 2025. But, of course, if there are changes to UK GDPR, then the EU would doubtless bring that review forward. Donnellan did admit that data adequacy is central to the plan for the new bill so businesses can continue trading freely. Donnellan claimed at the conference that current GDPR regulations are creating a disproportionate burden on small businesses, saying they're currently shackled by lots of unnecessary red tape and caps business profits by 8%. Now, I have to say that my personal opinion is I'm incredibly sceptical about that 8% figure because for your average company or your average SME, okay, agreed, you had a cost when you brought procedures into place and you have a cost for annual training. But if that's really 8% of your turnover, then on certainly the prices that we charge for training, then those people affected haven't really got a business, they've got a hobby. Now, of course, it may be that we need to massively increase our training prices, but I'll leave that decision for another day. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Cincinnati in the US now and Talbot House, a non-profit organisation, will begin mailing letters to individuals with information mailing involved in a data security breach that occurred in June 2021. They say that on June 11, 2021, Talbot House became aware of suspicious activity on their network. Upon discovering the suspicious activity, they immediately investigated and found that the network had been accessed by an unauthorised third party. 
They briefly took the network down to limit the impact and stop the unauthorised access. They then engaged an external cybersecurity firm to help secure the network and further enhance their security systems. Law enforcement have also been notified. Talbot House say that while the investigation is still ongoing, they've determined that the unauthorised third party accessed and acquired files containing information of clients, employees, partners and some other third parties. Those files included clients' protected health information, such as first and last name, full mailing address, medical information and health insurance information. For employees, partners and some other third parties, social security numbers, driver's licence numbers and financial account information may also have been accessed. Talbot House will begin mailing notification letters to individuals whose personal information has been impacted to provide them with information about this incident and guidance on how they can help protect their information. To date, Talbot House had no indication that any of this information has been used inappropriately and the company has not received any reports of identity theft associated with the incident. However, out of an abundance of caution, Talbot House will offer complimentary credit monitoring and identity theft protection services to individuals whose personal information has been impacted. The company also recommends that individuals whose personal information has been impacted review any statements they receive from their healthcare providers and health insurer. If clients see charges for services they did not receive, they should contact the provider or their insurer immediately. Protecting the privacy of its clients, employees, partners and members of our community is important to Talbot House and the company regrets any inconveniences in incident may have caused. To help prevent a similar incident from returning in the future, Talbot House has taken steps to enhance the security of its systems, is committed to continually reviewing its security protocols and processes and enhancing employee training and education. Talbot House established a dedicated external call centre for individuals to ask questions. The call centre can be reached at 855-551-1488, Monday through Friday, 9am to 6.30pm Eastern Daylight Time. Additional information can be found on Talbot House's website at https www.talberthouse.org. If we get any further update on this from Talbot House, we will talk speak to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. To Detroit now, and Detroit has terminated its contract with an Otimus-based election software company after its founder was taken into custody on suspicion of poll worker data theft in California. The company had worked with the city since 2008 on various poll management and logistics systems over the course of several elections. On Wednesday, Eugene Yu, the chief executive of Connect, was arrested as part of a Los Angeles County-based investigation. Connect had a five-year, $2.9 million contract with the county to administer poll worker assignments, communications and payroll. LA County prosecutors found that Connect was storing information in China in violation of the agreement. Data breaches are an ongoing threat to our digital way of life, Los Angeles District Attorney George Gaston said in a statement. When we entrust a company to hold our confidential data, they must be willing and able to protect our personal identifiable information from theft. Otherwise, we could all be victims. Detroit had a similar contract with Connect for its use of its poll chief software, which is said to have the ability to send mass letters, emails and phone calls to polling locations and record responses of election workers. The $320,000 contract, approved last year by Detroit City Council, was set to expire in June 2024. According to city and federal records, Connect had worked with the city on several specific applications for more than a decade, including ballot fast scanning software and a mobile app for uniformed and overseas citizens' absentee voting act return ballots. Following news of user arrest, Detroit terminated its current contract with Connect. In a statement, city clerk Janice Winfrey upheld the integrity of Detroit's election process and the security of employee information. 
Our data, which is now back under our exclusive control, was housed on servers located in Lansing in Michigan. To net, Perwitz contract only provided logistical and tool centre support, said Winfrey. Out of an abundance of caution, all proper steps have been taken, including the termination of the next contract. My staff and I are confident that the 2022 election process will run smoothly, delivering after all votes have been counted an unimpeachable work product. According to the Michigan Secretary of State's office, Detroit is the only Michigan municipality that contracts with Connect. The company did not respond to our request for comment. Connect operates a payroll management system for poll workers that is used by Detroit and has never had access to voter data or election data, said Angela Bernanda, a spokesperson for the Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. The Michigan Bureau of Elections does not contract with Connect. Michigan elections remain secure and voters can be confident in their integrity and accuracy. The Michigan Economic Development Corporation, previously named Connect, a success story. In November 2021, the company received a $306,000 grant from the Michigan Strategic Fund to expand and establish its headquarters in East Lansing and bring about more than 50 new jobs. References and articles about Jeanette appear to have been removed from the MEDC website, including statements from Governor Gretchen Whitmer about the company. Connect's growth is great news for our state, our families and our economy and further underscores the competitive advantages our state has to offer growing tech businesses, Whitmer had said in a previous release obtained through an internet archive. Connect has been the focus of 2020 election denialists, including Michigan Secretary of State candidate Christina Teramo, who has highlighted use arrest on her social media channels. Teramo has repeated baseless claims made by former President Donald Trump about fake election results in Detroit, a race where President Joe Biden won 94% of more than 250,000 ballots cast. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com A lawsuit issued in Connecticut alleges that Ruger failed to safeguard a sensitive personally identifiable information of its customers during a nearly two-year-long data breach that it recently disclosed. Plaintiff Mark Jones claims Sturm, Ruger and Company alleged failure to protect its customers' information during the data breach was particularly egregious considering that the company sells firearms and exposed shipping and billing addresses. Jones argues that criminals have gained unauthorised access to customers' private information to now target the homes of firearm owners to steal firearms that they cannot obtain through legal channels. In addition to physical addresses, the Ruger data breach exposed customers' first and last names, email addresses, payment card data and other sensitive information. Jones claims the Ruger data breach was engineered and targeted at accessing and exfiltrating the personal information of its customers to perpetrate theft, identity, crimes and fraud. Ruger failed to prevent or detect the data breach for nearly two years while refusing to take steps to prevent the breach from happening and ensure its data systems were safe, the Ruger class action alleges. Jones wants to represent a nationwide class of customers who were impacted by the Ruger data breach, including individuals who were sent a notice. Jones claims that Ruger is guilty of negligence, unjust enrichment and breach of implied contract. He demands a jury trial and requests declaratory and injunctive relief, along with an award of actual and statutory damages from himself and all class members. When we get any update on this, either from Ruger or from the US District Court in the District of Connecticut, we will just bring it to you right here on the GDPR Witchy Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. Some breaking news now, and Toyota Motor Corporation on Friday announced that a major leak impacting more than 296,000 of its customers has been detected. 
In a press release, it said that 296,019 email addresses and contact numbers have been exposed in a data breach. Customers that use Toyota's telematics service T-Connect, which is a smartphone app service that allows users to connect to their virtual via network, and individuals who have signed up to the service since July 2017 would have been affected by this. When we get more information on this from Toyota, we will just bring it to you right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To San Francisco now, and a San Francisco jury has found that Uber's former chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, guilty of criminal obstruction for failing to report a 2016 cybersecurity incident to authorities. Sullivan, who was fired by Uber in 2017, was found guilty on counts of obstruction of justice and deliberate concealment of felony, a spokesperson for the US Justice Department confirmed on Wednesday this week. Sullivan affirmatively worked to hide the data breach from the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and took steps to prevent the hackers from being caught, said Stephanie Hines, US Attorney for the Northern District of California. The case has been watched an important precedent regarding the culpability of individual security staff and executives when handling cybersecurity incidents, a concern that's only grown at a time when reports of ransomware attacks have surged and cybersecurity insurance premiums have risen. This particular case pertains to a breach of Uber systems that affected data of 57 million passengers and drivers. The breach took place in 2016, but Uber only disclosed it publicly a year later. Public disclosure of security breaches are required by law in many US states, with most regulations mandating notification must be made in the most expedient time possible and without unreasonable delay. Uber's revelations sparked several federal and state inquiries. In September 2018, Uber paid $148 million to settle claims by all 50 US states and Washington DC that it was too slow to disclose the hacking. The two hackers involved in the breach pleaded guilty to hacking Uber and then it's stored in Uber's Bug Bounty Security Research Program the following year. The Justice Department filed criminal charges against Sullivan in 2020. At the time, prosecutors alleged he'd arranged to pay the hackers $100,000 in Bitcoin and had them sign non-disclosure agreements that falsely stated they had not stolen data. Sullivan was also accused of withholding information from Uber officials who could have disclosed the breach to the FTC, which had been evaluating the San Francisco company's data security following a previous breach in 2014. In July, Uber accepted responsibility for covering up the breach and agreed to cooperate with the prosecution of Sullivan over its alleged role in concealing the hacking as part of a settlement with US prosecutors to avoid criminal charges against the company itself. An FTC spokesperson said in a statement on Thursday, the court's decision affirms that hiding serious breaches of data from the FTC will not be tolerated and makes clear that big tech executives are not above the law. On 7th of September 2022, the ICO published draft guidance on privacy-enhancing technologies, PETs. It is hoped that the guidance will help organisations have the confidence to utilise PETs to develop innovative applications without compromising on privacy concerns or trust. The guidance is divided into two sections. One, how can PETs help with data protection compliance? And two, what are PETs? So what are PETs and why would the ICO be interested? Well, PETs are not defined in data protection law, but the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, ENISA, 
defines them as systems encompassing technical processes, methods or knowledge to achieve specific privacy or data protection functionality or to protect against risks of privacy of an individual or group of natural persons. The Giants provide a more practical explanation of what PETs are, explaining that they're enablers that extract data value while providing data security. The ICO's interest in PETs comes about because while they're growing in popularity, they're still not routinely used by all businesses. The ICO's tend to encourage uptake and research into the field by providing greater clarity on these technologies. At the same time, the ICO also seeks to ensure sufficient guidance from organisations on how to use PETs lawfully. Indeed, time is of the essence. Given that Gartner, the US consultancy company, predicts that PETs will be adopted by a majority of large organisations by 2025. The ICO has been clear about the data protection benefits of PETs. These benefits include helping organisations comply with data protection principles, especially data minimisation, purpose limitation and security. PETs are also intrinsically linked to the concept of data protection by design default, which is itself, of course, one of the key cornerstones of GDPR. PETs can further aid data protection by providing a means of demonstrating compliance with Article 25 of GDPR, which is all about data protection by design and default. So what sort of PETs are there? Well, they can be broadly divided into three main categories. PETs that reduce the identifiability of individuals, i.e. they anonymise the data. PETs that focus on hiding or shielding data. And PETs that control access to certain parts of data. So some examples might be trusted execution environments, the secure area inside a computing device's central processing unit. This will allow code to be run and data to be assessed while isolating that data from the rest of the system. For example, biometric data on users can be kept separate from non-secure applications and only be used for an agreed purpose, perhaps for unlocking someone's phone or allowing access through a doorway. Then the Secure Multi-Party Computation, SMPC, which is a protocol that allows at least two different parties to jointly perform processing on the combined data without either party needing to share all of its data with each of the other parties. This could be useful, for example, for healthcare providers like the UK's NHS that routinely need to share information with different organisations, typically universities, who are working with their patients. And then there's homomorphic encryption, or HE. This allows you to perform computations on encrypted data without first encrypting it. HE has the potential to support GDPR-compliant international data transfers by allowing personal data to be stored and processed outside the EU, but only allowing for decryption on servers and locations that comply with GDPR requirements. However, it's recognised that PETs are not risk-free, and therefore the ICO recommends that you still undertake your data protection impact assessment at DPIA to establish whether the use of PETs is appropriate for your organisation's needs. This assessment should take into account the nature, scope and purposes of the processing, as well as the maturity and cost of the PET. The second is it's not quite known yet how scalable PETs will prove to be. And thirdly, the protection that PETs provide in its robustness against attacks and data leakage is, again, not 100% certain because we're not there yet, they're still being developed. This is something which is going to continue to develop for sure over the next 12 or 18 months. And so whenever we have an update on PETs, we will of course bring it to you right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To Ireland now, and the Road Safety Authority has only published provisional data on road traffic collisions for the past five years due to what it says are GDPR concerns. 
The issue was raised in a written dialogue question last month by Labour leader Ivana Bakuk. She asked if Transport Minister Eamon Ryan's attention had been drawn to the fact that the Road Safety Authority has not published any data on road traffic collisions since 2016. She then asked when up-to-date data had been made available. In response, Minister of State and Department of Transport, Hildegard Nelson, said she was advised that in light of GDPR requirements, the RSA is currently reviewing their road collision data traffic sharing policies and procedures. Mr. Nathan added that individual record level data cannot be shared until this review is concluded over the coming months. Once the review is completed, Minister Nelson said the RSA expects to implement revised policies and procedures to permit GDPR to apply access to relevant RTC data. She then pointed to the provisional aggregated data the RSA has been published in the meantime. According to the RSA's research department, all data from 2018 onwards is provisional and subject to change. In a statement, a spokesperson for the RSA confirmed that it's in the process of reviewing its road traffic collision data sharing procedures and policies. The spokesperson explained that this is being done in light of the fact that data must be treated as personal data in order to comply with GDPR. They added that record-level road traffic collision data do not be shared until this review is complete, but it's best to be finalised in the coming months. At that point, the RSA will have new policies and procedures in place for access to RTC information and data. These new policies and procedures will be underpinned by a variety of legislative instruments as well as specific measures designed to share data in a GDPR-compliant manner. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, you have heard us several times mention the name of Johnny Ryan from the ICCL, the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Well, this week, Johnny's written to the European Commission criticising them for potentially failing to properly monitor Ireland's GDPR enforcement while the fundamental rights of all Europeans hang in the balance. In the letter, Johnny says that the European Commission have produced little to indicate this diligently monitored Ireland's application of GDPR. This comes eight months after EU Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly opened an inquiry into the European Commission's monitoring of how data protection rules were applied in Ireland. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was requested to provide a detailed and comprehensive account of the details it has collected on how GDPR is applied by the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC. The Irish Data Watchdog acts as the EU's lead data supervisor for several major US tech players that have all chosen to have their European headquarters in Ireland. The inquiry was the result of a formal complaint lodged by Ryan in November last year, claiming that the European Commission neglected its duty to act on Ireland's failure to properly apply GDPR. Ryan's organisation, the ICCL, has long been critical of the DPC over how it's been handling GDPR complaints against large tech companies such as Meta, Google and Apple. Ryan told the government committee last year that Ireland had become a bottleneck of GDPR investigation and enforcement and the Irish DPC had failed to resolve 98% of cases important enough to be of concern across the EU, a claim that has been heavily disputed by the DPC. In his letter, Ryan points out that the Ombudsman gave the European Commission a deadline the 15th of May to provide its account of how it had monitored GDPR applications, but did not reply until June. The following month, the Ombudsman said the response was not a detailed and comprehensive account of the actual information that it's selected so far, and requested further information by the end of September. Ryan said that the European Commission's latest responses to the Ombudsman's inquiry raised several concerns regarding its position on the value of statistics from the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, 
which it previously described as the most authoritative source. Yet the Commission has taken a new position on the value of moral statistics in its latest response. It now argues that what it calls a mechanical examination of statistics will not distinguish between easy enforcement cases and more complex and difficult ones. Yet the European Commission's general approach to the question of Ireland's application of GDPR in its recent response is contrary to comments made by the EU competition chief, Marguerite Vestager, on a recent visit to Dublin. After eight months, there's no evidence that the Commission has taken adequate steps to select the necessary information or to examine the information it receives, Ryan wrote. Nor has it used its competence to request development data from any source or to obtain comparative data across the EU. Instead, it continues to cite irrelevant or inadequate information sources. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is a insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should not be taken as specific legal advice you should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye-bye.